today will be on 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, how can you tell something's changed? Some transformations are clear, like when a caterpillar transforms into a butterfly or daytime turns into night as the sun disappears. My grandfather for years and years had a large Moses-like beard, and I remember the story of when he shaved it off one day, and his youngest son, who was probably like eight or nine, saw him come down the stairs and was incredibly disturbed. A radical transformation had taken place. Who was his father? Other transformations are less obvious, so pundits debate endlessly on how the GOP has changed in the 21st century, and sports commentators argue about if Russell Westbrook can change and mature enough to lead a team to an NBA title, right? Transformations can be vivid or subtle, and they're all around us. Well, today we begin a study in the New Testament letter of 1 Thessalonians, and here we see Paul thanking God for the transformation he sees in the Christians in that place. So Paul was one of the earliest missionaries of the Christian church, and this letter finds him on his second missionary journey, and he's recently visited the Greek city of Thessalonica, and he's preached the gospel there. You can read about it in the first 10 verses of Acts 17, but there was a good response to his preaching. People believed in Christ, but others were not so thrilled. We read that the Jewish leaders were unhappy with Paul's teaching and began to stir up the city against him. So Paul and those with him barely escaped to the city of Berea. But the Jewish leaders were so mad at Paul that they just pursued him even to Berea, and Paul had to leave there and go on to Athens. And around this time, Paul and Tim, Paul it, it just becomes nervous and concerned about how things are going in Thessalonica. His stay there had been cut short, and he wants to know how they're doing, so he sends Timothy back. He prays that they were persevering even in persecution. And then the third chapter of 1 Thessalonians, which Lord willing we'll get to in the next few weeks, we read that Timothy comes back to Paul, who's at this point in the city of Corinth, and he comes with great news. Paul, the church is doing well. And Paul's relieved and encouraged by Timothy's report, and so he sits down and writes this letter to this new church. 
He's full of joy and gladness. They're continuing to be changed by the gospel he brought to them. We see at the beginning of the letter here, which Aaron just read for us, and really this is probably the second letter we have of Paul's in the New Testament. It's an early letter. He just overflows with thanksgiving to God. And so with our time this morning, let's look at three things he's thankful for in the Thessalonian church, in this newly planted church. First, they were being transformed by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. Transformed by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. Second, they were becoming more like Jesus. They were becoming more like Jesus. And third, their faith spread to others. Their faith spread to others. So first, let's see how these Christians were being transformed by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. So after giving his customary greeting there, Paul dives into thanksgiving to God. Thanksgiving that really continues all the way into the third chapter. He says that in his prayers, he's just overwhelmed with gratitude for what has taken place in Thessalonica. You can see the words that show his great joy. He's always giving thanks for all of them, constantly remembering them. We'll see in coming chapters just how intimately Paul loves these new Christians, calling himself their father and their mother in the faith. One author writes, Paul is a spiritual parent to the Thessalonians, and just as little children are never far from the thoughts of their parents, so Paul is continually mindful of his children, the Thessalonians. And we see the heart of Paul as he praises God for this church. He uses the familiar trio of faith, hope, and love in verse 3 as he thanks God for the Thessalonians' work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. The Thessalonians were not merely believing, but they were being transformed by the gospel. Their faith was not sterile. It was productive, motivating them to work, to love one another, to look forward to Christ's return. Down in verses 9 and 10, we see how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. If you were here two weeks ago when we looked at the third chapter of Jonah, this will sound familiar, right? The prepositions of Christian repentance from and to. As we turn to God, we turn necessarily from sin and rebellion against him. And and we turn to him to worship and serve him and receive his forgiveness in Christ. Turning to Christ means forsaking idols. Everything we might worship more than him. He is our ultimate joy. And Paul's grateful that this repentance is being worked out in the Thessalonians. There in verse 4, Paul encourages them by telling them that they've been loved by God and chosen by him. And how does he know that? Because when he preached the gospel to them, it didn't come to them only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction We see in Acts 17 that Paul preached them from the scriptures. How? Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. It was Jesus, Thessalonians, who was this risen king. And Paul's word had not fallen on deaf ears, praise God. The word preached by Paul had been powerfully effective. How? Well, the word of the gospel was preached, but that's not where it ended. The word of the gospel was accompanied by power and the Holy Spirit. This comes up, I feel like, every maybe five or six weeks as we study through books, church. This, this reminds us again of uh, how powerfully the Holy Spirit works through the word of God. I mean, we can often talk about wanting to walk in the Spirit and follow his leading, and that's, that's fine and good. 
But if we do that expecting a still small voice to answer all our questions or some sort of magical sign to appear to guide us, we're going to miss a point. If we pay little attention to the Spirit's leading through the Word of God, through the message of the gospel, we will be neglecting the Holy Spirit's favorite tool in his toolbox. What does Paul say in Ephesians 6? The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is grateful that his preaching is not just words strung together, but the very power of the Holy Spirit himself. The Spirit of God is the one who gives life. The Spirit of God is the one who builds the church of God by the word of God. John Stott writes, we must never divorce what God has married, namely his word and his spirit. As I was thinking about this this past week, I thought about those of you who are like me, and you spent your lifetime in church. That's what Sundays were for. You've heard sermon after sermon after sermon. You know what church life looks like. Maybe kids and teens today, you can, you can identify with this. You know the church game. You know the Sunday school answers. But just be reminded here gently that hearing isn't enough. You can hear thousands of sermons and yet refuse to actually listen to them responding in faith. You can hear the words of God and yet not be transformed by the Spirit of God. So take warning. Don't assume you're fine just because you get your Sunday fix week by week. Don't be content just to look like a Christian. You will deceive yourself. What it means to really trust in Christ and be a Christian is not only to hear the Bible, to be transformed by it. Gospel is not just a how-to guide. It's not stale theology. It's revolutionary power, like John read for us earlier from Romans 1. So think about your own heart. Have you been transformed by the reading of God's word? As you've heard it taught. Have you experienced the spirit of God provoking your conscience, guiding you to more joy in your faith, giving rest to your soul? I promise you, it'll be more honest and healthy for your own soul to admit you're just not a Christian than to go on pretending to be one. Some of you may be unsettled by that, and that's kind of why I said it. That's a good thing. Use that to ask other Christians in your life to help you take stock of your faith and see whether you're in Christ. For the others of us who tend to be more introspective and doubtful on a regular basis, there's more. We should take warning, but we should also be comforted by this text because Christian life is a life of growth. And we see that in our second point. The Thessalonian Christians were becoming more like Jesus. Look there in verse six, Paul writes, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I remember as a kid wanting to imitate the people I admired. It's a human thing. And it hasn't really stopped. So if you see me gazing off into the future, I might be daydreaming that I can play basketball like Michael Jordan or I can play piano like Billy Joel. Just want to imitate their excellence. That's really what the Thessalonian Christians are doing here, right? They're looking to Paul, the one who has brought to them the gospel, and they're seeking to imitate him. As Paul is imitating Christ, so they want to imitate him. Greg Beale writes, and he puts it this way, 
Family members resemble one another, especially children, their parents. Children often mimic their parents' habits and character traits. And it is no different in the family of faith. If we really are a part of God's family, then will we reflect his love? We'll be like Jesus, the son of God, the perfect model of faith, love, and hope. And we will be like other Christian brothers and sisters who reflect those godly qualities. You know, in our, in our culture, we value origina- originality, don't we? I, I'm often amazed at just how many songs come out on a daily basis using just 12 different notes on a scale. We just never neglect to throw out new tunes, right? They're being composed every day. And that's great. That's creativity at work. And we scoff when a song imitates another song. Remember when uh, Pharrell got in trouble a few years ago borrowing a song? That's illegal, right? You don't end up borrowing someone else's melody. But friends, it's never illegal to copy the godliness of other Christians, to imitate them. In fact, if you try to follow Christ on your own without help, without trying to pattern your life after others, you will fail. Our faith is meant to be lived out in community as a family of believers. That's why we gather on Sunday mornings and throughout the week. That's why we have a membership covenant where we promise to encourage one another and confront one another if we sin. We need that. We need each other to persevere all the way to heaven. That's the way the church works. Healthy imitation of one another as we together imitate Christ. And notice the Thessalonians don't stop with imitating others. No, they begin to set an example for yet others. Verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Christian, understand this. You are not only called to imitate other believers, but to be imitatable. That word had red lines under it (laughs) as I typed it, but it's a good word. So many of you have humbly sought to be discipled and counseled by other, you know, mature Christians in this church. You've spotted out people. You're like, they're more mature than I. They're more in love with Jesus than I am. I want them to help me and keep doing that. That's great. Don't stop that. But at the same time, even you young Christians, don't forget that you now have a responsibility to lead others as well. Don't forget to turn and help those who are struggling in their faith who are just mired in sin like you used to be, or like you're still struggling to be. Don't forget to seek out those who need encouragement. You may feel like you don't have much to offer, but you do, not because you're so awesome, but because God has promised to work through you in covenant with his church by the power of his spirit to build us up. Don't neglect that duty. What what a motivation to be holy to kill sin. We want to be imitatable, worth imitating in our church family as we imitate Christ. Brothers and sisters, are you imitatable? And notice there how this imitation was being worked out in the church. I think this is important. Verse six, these Thessalonians received the word. How? In much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This makes sense considering who they were imitating, right? Paul and Jesus. 
just like Paul, just like Jesus himself, these Christians were growing as they suffered and were being filled with joy. Paul always puts suffering and joy in the same sentence, doesn't he? For Paul, it was his suffering that centered his joy on Christ. Christian, if your joy rides on your work performance or your physical health or your skills perceived by others, your joy will have a precarious foundation. But if God in his severe grace gives you hardship to burn away all those other things you're tempted to build your joy on and leaves you only with Jesus, well, then your joy will be built on the unshakable foundation of God himself. You will have a battered joy, yes, but one that is increasingly unmoving, unswerving, full of hope. And so Paul gives thanks that these Thessalonians who are being persecuted are being filled with joy. And, and Christian, I don't want to leave that topic yet because you see your, your path to joy must go through suffering because you're following a suffering Savior. Remember how the author of Hebrews puts it, how it was for the joy that was set before Jesus that he endured the cross. Christian, don't ignore your suffering. Don't try to outlast it. Flourish in it. It's making the, the soil of your spiritual health more fertile. Whatever God is giving you that seems like the bitter pill in your mouth this morning, don't rush from it or distract yourself from it. Dig down deep into it and find the reservoirs of joy in the spirit even in the midst of the wilderness of your suffering. It's there. This will not only be for your good, but for the good of the church who's looking to imitate you. Pray for that, church family. As you pray through your membership directory, pray for those you know are suffering. That their suffering wouldn't be in vain, but would be immensely fruitful for the glory of God and the joy of this church as we become more like Christ. In church, one of the ways we can most encourage one another is to remember that the end of suffering is near. The end of suffering is near. Look in verse 10. These Christians are waiting, waiting for Christ from heaven, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. See, two things are coming, the wrath of God and the Son of God. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the, the Bible teaches that you will not be covered by the Son of God when he returns. Instead, you will be consumed by the wrath of God. God is wrathful against sin. That's part of his goodness. He would not be good if he was not angry at our sin because our sin is evil. It has stolen his glory and it's hurt others made in his image. And so each of us deserve God's wrath. But the amazing news of the gospel is that Jesus came to deliver us from the wrath to come. How? By absorbing it for us. When we deserved God's judgment, Jesus came and died on the cross to take it in our place. God, listen to this, God punished his own son for all the sins of those who would trust in him. That offends many today. 
It's called divine child abuse. How dare God treat his son that way? Friends, it's because Jesus willingly gave up his will to the will of his father and because God loved you and wanted to bring you to himself. So friend, if you have not yet trusted in Christ and what he has done in his death and resurrection, do so today. It's your only chance to be spared God's wrath when Christ returns. Jesus willingly took on himself the deadly consequences of our sin. It took the death of the very Son of God to spare us the very wrath of God. What glorious news, church. This is the gospel that we celebrate, that we get to celebrate and remember and rehearse every Sunday morning. That's why we need to do this again and again and again. If you're looking for something to encourage another Christian with today or this week, Tell them this, the judge is coming in mercy. The Thessalonians were looking forward to that day. They had been transformed by the spirit of God through the word of God. They were becoming more like Christ. And finally, their faith was spreading to others. Look there in verse eight. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. See, the Thessalonians were not just rejoicing in their salvation. They were telling people about it. The, the outer reach, reaches of Greece and beyond were hearing the gospel from this church. Paul is, as he's working, he's just discovering that their witness has just been catapulting throughout the area, so much so that he doesn't need to say as much anymore. Is Paul's job in jeopardy here? He's so grateful for it. And again, it was not only the word of the gospel that was going forth, but the Thessalonians were backing up that gospel with their faith. They were living in hope and love, showing the gospel in their actions and speaking of Christ with their lips. And, and this is important to note here. We, we can easily miss this in the text, but see, the witness of the Thessalonian church was not just the witness of their four or five most gifted evangelists. I, I look out and I see some of you who are just gifted in sharing the gospel, and I praise God for you. Go, you know, that's why we want to go on mission trips. We want to go out and be involved in the community and share the gospel, and we want you to teach us. But listen, the, 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 the responsibility to share the gospel is not up to the four or five best evangelists in this room. It, it's not even up to me and Brad, the, the, grow, the pastoral staff, if it, Lord willing, it grows, or the elders as we grow. The entire church at Thessalonica was witnessing to the power of God. Look in verse 7. Does Paul say they became examples to all the believers? No, it's singular. They became an example. This was a corporate witness, friends. This was a church family together showing forth the beauty of Christ. And it was contagious. John mentioned earlier, John 13, in his prayer, people will know we're the followers of Christ by how we love each other. There's a witness in our corporate identity that is more powerful than any one Christian on their own. 
I love how Paul says the word sounded forth from them. That word has the imagery of thunder. We've had summer storms roll through recently, right? And that thunder can just rattle your rib cage. It's so loud. Well, in the same way, the power of the gospel was rattling outward from the Thessalonian church, and people were being drawn to Christ. Loudon Valley Baptist Church, the gospel's transforming power in us will never stay contained if it's the true power of the Spirit. It will always have collateral effect around us. It will both change us and those around us. Are we being obedient to that? One of the things that I've been growing in as your pastor is preaching the sermon to myself before I preach it to you. And so I had to ask myself this week, and I ask you secondarily, is your faith impacting those around you? Is it ricocheting throughout this church and beyond these high school cafeteria walls, as beautiful as they are? Do, do your kids and your neighbors hear you talking about your Savior? Can you, by God's grace, look around this room and, and point to people who have benefited directly by your example of pursuing God? Is your joy in your suffering proving to be a witness to those who are looking at your life? If the answer to those questions is more no than yes, then just don't despair in that. Pursue God. Ask him for strength. Seek out those who need to hear. Start reading the Bible with someone. Begin telling them about what God is doing in your life and ask them to reciprocate and tell you the same. Take bold steps to share the gospel with those in your neighborhood, at your workplace, or in your school. Take risks with the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. Church, let's not be cul-de-sacs of God's gracious message. Let's keep it rolling. Let's keep it rolling in its powerful victory. This spreading of the gospel may not take place because we look so good or powerful or well put together. No, actually, the, the usual pattern of the Christian life is that the gospel will spread through our weakness. Another author rightly notes that God may bring suffering on many in a church in order to increase and strengthen its corporate witness. If we want to be more like Jesus, we need to be open to being vulnerable and weak so that the power of God for salvation is shown through us. Church, do not be discouraged by the call to suffering. Jesus is coming back. Suffering has a deadline. And the joy that we have knowing he's coming back, the joy we have being united to him now, and the joy that we will have being glorified with him then will far outweigh any suffering of now. What sort of church ought we to be then as we are transformed by the Spirit through the Word of God? As we become more like Jesus by imitating each other and as the gospel reverberates out from our midst. Again, John Stott writes that God intends 
every church to be like a sounding board, bouncing off the vibrations of the gospel. Oh, let us pray that we would be a loud part of that sounding board here in our community and around the world, not because we are so powerful, but because the all-powerful, all-merciful, all-victorious king is our king. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace that was so visibly at work in this young church in Thessalonica. Thank you that just weeks after it was planted, it was already producing fruit. Lord, we rejoice with Paul in the witness of that congregation, a witness that's still being felt today, and we pray by your mercy that you would do the same in us. Lord, we are weak vessels, but we are willing. So use us. Use us for your glory. And keep us expectant, looking forward to when you come back again. Come quickly, King Jesus. Amen.